Okay, last episode I started singing, so I think it is fair that in this episode, Kirsten should start singing. What? Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what is your song about astronomy? Uh, I don't know any songs about astronomy except when Twinkle took a little star. <laughs> oh, well, that was a good one. Okay, no worries. Uh, I think that you have your mind on other things. I, d I do, yes. Probably yes, excited just, about tonight. A little bit excited about tonight, yes. What is happening tonight? I get to see Brian Cox tonight. Ah, yes, because you're going to see Brian Cox. Mm. It is not because you're going to be in television. Oh, that's that too. That's also an exciting part of it. In the public Australian TV, participating in one of the most famous TV shows in Australia. Mm-hmm, that's right. Half of the scientists is going to be on ABC's Q&A. Ah! <laughs> So you have never had a question for Kirsten. That will be your chance. <coughs> mm -hmm. I'm very excited. I'm very nervous too. It's ah, yeah. Ah. You should see her face at the moment. <laughs> this is a pity of uh, doing podcast. You can never see my fantastic facial expressions. Well, we have been told that perhaps we should put a camera. <laughs> <laughs> but Vera, no. Maybe not. <laughs> Anyway, I'm Kirsten Banks and I'm Angel Lopez Sanchez and, and we, we are, are the scientists. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 27. Oh, good. That was your song. Okay. <laughs> That's all you get. <laughs> it was not at the very beginning, but uh, it's fair enough. It is already in the episode. It's, it's in, we, it's we wanted to be Kirsten. spontaneous. <laughs> we got Kirsten thinking. Yiffy. <laughs> uh, but yes, we are on to episode 27. Mm -hmm. we're, we're going pretty well, I have to say. I know I say this every single episode. I can never believe that we are N plus one episodes in. We are having a lot of fun with that, and that is the reason why we are doing it. So, and we are also getting great feedback at the moment. We so. are apparently have a lot of feedback yeah, today. Yeah, I'm not sure if I start with that one. I was not expecting to, but now that you have mentioned it, why not? Why not? Let me move my paper. <laughs> ah, yeah, here it is, because it is heaps. So I have here some of the comments we have received in Twitter, which ah. is the only thing I check. Sorry, <laughs> guys. Perhaps we should be also checking Facebook and emails and other places, but I confess that I'm a Twitter person. Anyway, I'm going to start with this interesting comment by Kevin Breen, who retweeted another tweet from, I don't remember the person, sorry, I didn't write it down, but he was saying, Breaking NASA has confirmed that the moon is indeed part of Mars. <laughs> This astronomical fact was somehow overlooked until our great leader, in his infinite wisdom, pointed it out to us. I, oh, I saw this tweet by Donald Trump, and oh my goodness, it is hilarious. Nobody really understood it, I think. No. Not no. even himself. <coughs> okay, enough. <laughs> Move to another one. And um, we also got some feedback from uh, our very good friend, Devika. Ah, yes. Kamath. She was uh, one of the astronomers talking in Python Science in Sydney. Mm -hmm. And we had her in a couple of episodes ago when we were 
recording in Python Science because she was actually retweeting our episode and she was very happy about that and she said doing this interview for the Scientist with Lobo Rayado and Astro Kerstin was super fun. Thanks, guy. I'm a big fan of the Scientist. And we're a big fan of you, Devika. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> Thank you very much for that. Then, what else do I have? I have two extra funny things, or more or less funny, and I know that that is a bit more interesting. So let me go for, for the two funny ones. <laughs> just very recently, just a couple of days ago, our friend Panda Hill retweeted a NASA JPL image talking about Mars Boobenan. That is this kind of very interesting pattern that have been found using the high-rise instrument which stands for High Resolution Imaging Science Experiment on board of the Morse Reconnaissance Orbiter. That's right. That, and it says, uh, dunes, lava and wind are responsible for this curious shape of Hellas Planitia. That is a kind of the a Star Trek symbol. Mm. Looks this, like a Star Trek symbol. The Federation, I think it mm. is, no? this kind of... So it was a very interesting feature to see on Mars, since I have been already conquered by the Trekkies. <laughs> Also, another comment that we have received from uh, our friend Hector Socas Navarro. Hector is the creator of the podcast Coffee Break, which mm -hmm. is this uh, very famous science communication podcast in Spain from the Canary Islands Institute of Astronomy. Which we've mentioned on a few times. We have mentioned a couple of times because I participate on that. And, and actually, two episodes ago, I mentioned again, please have a look or listen to the Scientist because we were interviewing Kyler. Mm. For talking about the uh, Starlink and so on, they always record the episode at 4 p.m. Canary Islands time mm -hmm. on the Thursdays. That is for us now in Australia 1 a.m. Ah. And I have to wake up if I'm not observing because in the past I was observing a bit more often. It was more or less okay. Mm. And while I was observing, I was participating. But now I have to actually wake up in the oh, middle no. of the night, <laughs> participate, and go back to bed. After that, and sometimes challenging having. Usually Fridays when lecturing at the union. So so I have been challenging for a while saying, hey, you have to record one episode of the Coffee Break podcast at your 1 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Some of them are kind of keen to try to do it, but Hector, of course, he's not that keen. And <laughs> he just invited himself to participate in the Scientist, and he will do that in pyjamas. <laughs> Excellent. And he's an, an well, very well-known uh, specialist about the sun. And we have never talked about the sun That's in right. our show. So perhaps it will be, know, be a, good episode. a good episode to have him talking about the sun, science communication, podcast, or podcasting, and so on. So good. The last comment, it is from 1CM69. Thank you for the comment. Just listening to episode 26 of The Scientist, isn't it the Outer Space Treaty designed to control what can and cannot be done in space and people, companies, nations can't just do what are they want to do? So that was the comment in Twitter. Um, we answered it to that because having a quick look to the, the Outer Space Treaty that was signed in 1967, and the main reason that that was created in that moment was focused on trying to limit the space for warfare purposes. 
okay, no mm. having any kind of weapons of mass destruction in Earth orbits, in the moon, and in any other celestial body, and so on. And then 1CM69 answer not wholly, see the clause to Article 9 and Project West Ford. In the early 60s of the last century, there was a project from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology that tried to create an artificial ionosphere about the Earth. And that was, of course, interfering with everyone else. Of not course. Only because they wanted to do something specific, protecting the, the communication. I think it was the communication of the satellites in the US. So okay. that was one of the reasons why in this space treaty, the outer space treaty, they included this clause just to try to also help to limit this kind of activities. I was not aware of that. Of course, we were not. It is something that we are learning as, as we go. In the same way that I didn't know and we didn't know that there is a specific office for outer space affairs in oh. the United Nations. And they're That's meeting, fancy. Yeah, and, and they're meeting from, from time to time. Even, for example, in, in, in during this week, the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of the Outer Space is meeting in Vienna, and one of the important points that they're going to discuss is precisely the impact of Starlink satellites. Oh, wow. It's, it's gone to the highest level now. Yes. That's um, really cool. We should definitely have a look if, if there's some sort of media release about the result of this meeting. We should definitely discuss it again and uh, update you guys on... What's happening with Starlink? That would be a really cool thing to talk about, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. I'd be interested. I will be very interested too about all of that. And I want to thank uh, my friend John Barantime, who is actually the director of public policy of the Dark Sky Ida Association. <laughs> and, and he was mentioning that in, in, in Twitter about uh, all of this. So that is the way I, I knew about that. Twitter used. Productively. Productively, exactly, mm. in, the, in the good sense. We've had heaps of feedback. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. That is great. That Please is... keep giving us your feedback. Give us questions, uh, give it comments, thoughts, all sorts of things. But for now, let's move on to the rest of our agenda for this episode. Yes. Then the next thing being space news. Uh, space news. And I've, I know I've been lacking on my space news for the last couple of episodes, but I have something this time. Please, what it is. And I'm a little curious about this particular space news. It's about space tourism. Ah, yes. Mm -hmm. You may have heard about this. Uh, So, basically, NASA has decided to let tourists stay on the International Space Station. Yes. However, it's going to be quite expensive, of course. Yes, of course. At at about $30,000 US per night. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it depends of how you consider expensive. That's that's very true, yes. I certainly think $35,000 per night is... Very expensive oh, I can tell as you a young uni student. I can tell you that for many people, particularly in this country, in this city, that is not that expensive. Mm. Depending exactly how, how much will be the total payment, mm. I would say. The thing will be how much will cost it at the end. Because you That's said right, depending on how much time you spend up there. And launching mm. and recovering and landing back yeah. on Earth. So how much will be that in total? So you're saying, okay, 35,000 a night. How much is the rest of it? Is it 100,000? Mm, and imagine the extra baggage claim. Oh, if you wanted to take an extra bag of clothes up there, that's going to cost you a lot mm-hmm, of money. <laughs> for sure. No, I also want to get my small telescope. <laughs> Don't Could so. you imagine? Yeah. That, 
I feel like that would be very hard. It'd be hard to keep the telescope still. Yeah, but later when you are there in the International Space Station, you don't need, I mean, you need a tripod, but you don't need a tripod, actually. You can hold it. That's true. <laughs> Look through. That's very that true. It. I think that that was what um, some of the astronauts have been doing there, oh. including Chris Hadfield. Just taking like 14 inches, I think it was a 14 inches telescope, just looking through the windows of the International Space Station, holding the 14 inches telescope with the hand and looking through. That's hilarious. <laughs> that would be so hard to do on Earth. <laughs> Damn gravity. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so it looks like space tourism is going to be accessible now. I think it is a very good idea. Um, so I saw that on Twitter, I think from you, mm. and I think, why not? It is a way of getting money from very, very people that they don't know what to do with their money. And funding space science. And funding space science. Perfectly achievable, perfectly legal, perfectly done. Yeah, I, I will go for it if they can. Let's start saving. We'll, we'll yes. start a GoFundMe. Send the scientists to the ISS. Imagine if we had an episode from space. Oh, that would be really nice. That would yes, be really yes, cool. Be, but then having another one at least on Earth. Yes. You know. We, I, I, would, to come back. I would love to see the Earth from outside, but oh. I really don't want to spend the rest of, of my life out there. I want no. to come back no, no, to no. my planet. Yeah. A, nice, a nice little trip to the, a weekend trip to the ISS. Or I'd like to do, I think I've talked about this before many times, and anyone who knows me well knows this is exactly what I want to do if I want to go out in space, and that's to orbit around the moon and see the Earth rise. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. that would be also a very, very nice thing to see. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think it is time for my space news. Oh, yes. That I'm going to do it, uh, try to be short on this one. It is a very nice new result using the ALMA radio interferometer in Chile, the mm-hmm. Atacama Large Millimetric Submillimetric Array. They have been observing the center of our Milky Way, Sagittarius A star. The black hole. The black hole. And trying to find emission from the gas that is surrounding the black hole. And, and they found it, oh. the emission of the cold gas. It is cold, cold gas, even though it is at uh, almost 10,000 degrees. Okay. But it I is, mean, I guess it's relatively cold. It is cold when you compare to the million degrees gas that yes. it is emitting in X-rays. That is why it is cold that way. Yep, that makes sense. 10,000 is much colder than 10 million. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They got a very nice image of that, even getting the the rotation of the gas mm. around the black hole. I mean, that is a very different thing to what we are expecting from the Event Horizon Telescope. Yes. So that, that is a different thing. So even the resolutions are very different. So mm. we are seeing the extended parts of, of the black hole. I mean, not, not of the black hole, you cannot see the black hole, of the of the areas surrounding yes. the black hole. The yep. black hole will be exactly where this cross in this image is, mm. but the, the, the real size of the black hole... We less than a pixel on that screen. It is less than the pixel of, oh, in the screen, exactly mm. what you said. Mm. So the, the event horizon, it is smaller than that. Yes. But with that, we can still see the gas rotating around and deriving some few interesting properties mm. and doing it for the very first time in this kind of object. So it was a very neat observations using the ALMA interferometer. It was published in Nature, this research, in early June with the title A Cool Accretion Disk Around the Galactic Center Black Hole. Very cool. Literally. Very cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's, what great space news we have this week? Ugh. As I did kind of let it slip 
on Twitter earlier this week, we are going to be talking about cosmology today. So we, we, we must mention first, though, cosmology is a big, big subject, so we won't be able to cover everything about cosmology today, but we'll try to give a bit of a foundation, a few fun facts about cosmology and whatnot. And uh, basically for me, I'm going to be talking about the the background theory of my thesis. <laughs> <laughs> Which is perfect. It's perfect. I've already done the work. <laughs> As you already mentioned, there is no way we can cover all the cosmology in one mm. single episode because there is so much to say and to talk and the little details are always... I mean, it is a big universe. It is amazing on, on, on how everything is connecting together and so on. But at least let's try to a proper definition of what cosmology is. That mm -hmm. is, I try to understand and to study the large-scale structure of the universe, how the universe was born, how it is evolving, what is the fate of our universe. So the origin, the structure, the evolution, and all of that. So that is huge. <laughs> It's a lot. That is a lot. And the different areas of a study can be not only the very early universe, but also going into the creation, the moment of the creation in the Big Bang itself. Mm -hmm. um, we can even be talking about theories that we thought were able to explain that before the Big Bang theory. And also the what it is now called the standard model for the Big Bang cosmology. Mm -hmm. Another area of study would be uh, something that is uh, what you have been mentioning, the cosmic microwave background. Something very important and that we can also mention that it is uh, the formation and evolution of the large-scale structure of the universe. Mm -hmm. These and are literally just headings in my literature review. <laughs> exactly, because it is what they are. So, and it's, then the, you, you right. have the discovery of the dark matter that mm -hmm. can be independently to the way we discovered in galaxies can be uh, found easily or it is found it is without that piece we will not be able to understand the cosmic background or the large scale mm. structure or whatever yes. so dark matter it is a very important part of this cosmology of the cosmology mm. as well as the dark energy of course that was uh, recently when i say recently perhaps uh, kirsten will look at me no but not recent because <laughs> i was very young when that happened <laughs> recently in the in the course of astronomy but I was already studying. Anyway, <laughs> and yes, I was in 1998 when it was uh, independently discovered by the two teams trying to understand uh, supernova explosions. I was one year old. You were on your <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And perhaps also, perhaps no, I will also include here the gravitational waves, studying the gravitational waves. Mm -hmm. Perhaps not that much the the ones that we are detecting at the moment, the black hole, black hole merger of neutron stars, neutron stars, black hole, neutron stars, any kind of those, but the ones that were generated at the beginning of the universe, the primordial mm. um, um, gravitational waves, and that will be also part of... From primordial black holes? Not well, necessarily. Not in, the, in, the very same, in the very moment of the, uh, the beginning of the universe, it is expected that there was some kind of big production of gravitational waves oh. and that have to be, I don't remember, it's at a very low frequency at the moment, difficult to achieve. Right now it is impossible to detect these kind of gravitational waves, but there are experiments and ideas, even in satellites, trying to get it. That's very cool. So where should we start then? 
Um, I will. I, I think it will be perhaps a good idea to start with uh, the beginning of how we understood the universe. Just big bang. Big bang. <laughs> but before getting to the big bang, we first have to realize that there were other galaxies, mm. and that the galaxies were moving away from us, and ah. that there was something that now we call the expansion of the universe. Mm. Discovered by Hubble. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. In 1929, Edwin Hubble published a very famous paper that is the paper showing that there is a very well-established relationship between the distance a galaxy is and the velocity it seems it is moving away from us. Ah. And that is what we call now the... Hubble law? The Hubble-Lemaitre law. Ah. Because that was in 1929. Hubble was actually using data not only taken by himself, but also taken by another U.S. astronomer, Vesto Slipher, who was able to determine the redshift of around 20 of these uh, galaxies. And now they, are, they were starting to be called galaxies because just a decade before than that, they were still trying to understand if there were other galaxies of or I mean, other island universes, mm. collection of millions, trillions of stars, or if they were just this kind of spiral things that we were observing in the sky with the telescopes. Because there was confusion between whether it was a nebula and or... Ne exactly, a, yeah. Yeah, that. that's, that's why a lot of... Was it the NGCs or... No. There's some of few, some few of the galaxies, for example... Mm, was it Andromeda The Andromeda one? Galaxy. That's right. The Andromeda yes. Galaxy, it can be also be called the, the big nebula in Andromeda. Ah. Or the great nebula in Andromeda. Yes. Something like that. Because yep. they were not sure if that we were seeing... Uh, a star that was born with a spiral disk with the planets and the gas. When that Could you was, imagine if it was that? That would, would be very cool. It would have been another kind of universe. Mm. We can imagine that. So just ten, 10 years before Hubble was doing all of this. But putting back into perspective, so Hubble published this in 1929, but in 1927, a Belgian priest... George Lemaitre, and he was very good uh, cosmology in that moment. He was using the equation of uh, general relativity by Einstein, and he proposed, or he found a solution of this equation in which the universe was in expansion. And naturally, in, in the paper that he wrote in that time, and that I think it was in French, and actually, you know, it was in French, and that was also why it had been. Uh, if the, the contribution by George Lemaitre had not been recognized till recently, mm. he was able to get as a game that relationship using observational data, the same observational data from uh, Best Sleep First, showing hey, it is here. Some few years after that, he was asked to move and to put that uh, paper in French into a research paper in English mm -hmm. and we don't know exactly why George Lemaitre took out all the section describing that he was using the data 
for not fitting the 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 the, the, the results that he was getting with the general relativity. He was giving credit to Hubble that he was the first one doing that. Okay. So it had been the kind of confusion in mm, the literature. back and forth for, of for, who's for, actually... For a lot of time. And finally, mm. last year in, in, in October, I think it was, the International Astronomical Union decided that the credit for the discovery of the expansion of the universe should be given to both of them, to Edwin ah, Hubble to and both. to George Lemaitre. And they renamed the Hubble's law into the Hubble's Lemaitre law. Ah, oh, there you go. That's good. It's good to always hear that there's recognition being given to all of the scientists involved in these sorts of really big discoveries. It's really nice to see that the the recognition is being shared around to all of those mm-hmm. who are definitely who I, are deserving of it. I think it is very important, and I also think it is. We try to pronounce the name of the people as much or better as we can, but. We both of us don't we're speak we're French. French. <laughs> um, I would like to click here for you guys to listen how the name of Georges Lemaitre is actually pronounced in French. Here we go. Georges Lemaitre. Did you get it? Nope. Let's try again. Georges Lemaitre. Georges Lemaitre. Yes. It's a fantastic name, I must say. From so it it is a bit of, a bit of history, but from there the point is that um, Hubble established this relationship, and I will say now Hubble because it was mainly Hubble who did that, in which this connection between the recession velocity of galaxies and the so distance, to say the the how fast these galaxies are moving away from us mm-hmm, exactly yeah. that can be very well measured using the Doppler effect. Mm-hmm. The relationship between the two of them was what is now called the Hubble constant. Yes. And that is still the Hubble constant. That is why I mm. say that it was something that he did, Edwin Hubble. And that is trying to say, okay, if a galaxy is at this distance, at which velocity it seems that it is moving away from us? Yes. Just being clear that it is the space itself that is expanding. It is not that the galaxy is moving away from us. It is just like a Doppler effect, but it is actually the expansion of the universe, what we are seeing here. And generally, at least from what I have in my thesis over here, is uh, Hubble's law reduces to... Well, when we, when we talk about distances, we, especially in, in galactic astronomy, we don't usually talk about light years because these are really big numbers. Mm-hmm. Like when we're talking yeah. about distance to planets, to stars, we don't use kilometers because it's just way too tedious to write down so many numbers. But that same thing happens again when we're talking about distant galaxies because we're talking about the closest major galaxy to us is two and a half million light years away. That's way too many symbols. So we like to use a different regime talking about the redshift of galaxies. And if I remember this correctly, I don't actually I don't actually have it written in this particular part yet. But the distance to a galaxy in terms of its redshift is redshift is equal to the Hubble constant multiplied by its distance. Ah, uh, yes. In in megaparsecs. In megaparsecs. So which is also another different that, that, <laughs> measurement. That, I, I thought that you were going actually there. So saying that the unit that we are using for the Hubble-Lemaitre law and for cosmology. That's right. It is the kilometers per second per, per megaparsec. megaparsec. So that means 
that if you have a galaxy that's one megaparsec away from you, that this unit of distance, and I'll describe how far that is in a moment, if a galaxy is one megaparsec away from you, then it is generally travelling away from you at a velocity of 70 kilometres per second. Assuming that the Hubble constant, it is 70 kilometres per second. Yes, assuming it's, that. It's perfect. Yeah. Yes, that, that, is, that is perfectly right. Yeah. A megaparsec, it is just a distance a million times a parsec. A parsec, it is 3.26 light years. Mm -hmm. So a megaparsec, it is just 3.26 million light years. That's right. And, that and not a, it is a unit of distance unlike, I think, Star Wars. It's, it's, there's something in Star Trek yeah, or Star no, Wars. Star Wars. Star and, Wars. And Star Wars in, but they were using parsecs. As distance? As distance. Oh, good. No, as distance, not as time. Ah. The Kaler, how it is called, they run. Han Solo was boosting about, oh, I was able to do this Kaler run or something. I don't remember, sorry. I should know, I should know, I know, <laughs> I know, but I'm very bad with names sometimes. Uh, in less than 13 megaparsecs, uh, 13 parsecs. That's very funny. And um, there are even people who have tried to think about, no, because they were talking actually about time and then, and anyway. <laughs> Um, hey, on the right side, we can convert time to electron volts, so maybe we can convert distance to time. The, yeah. the other thing I like to say about the Hubble-Lemaitre law, it is that it is one of these very easy equations in the first order, in the, the way we, it was measured, mm -hmm. and, and it is just directly the easiest equation in physics, which is the law of continuous movement without mm. acceleration. Mm. It is just that, because you have the distance, the velocity... And something there that is the Hubble constant, which at the end of the day, it is the inverse of a time. It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, of course it is. So there is a way of connecting the age of the universe with the Hubble constant. Mm. And in an empty universe, it will be just that. The inverse of the Hubble constant will be the Hubble time and the age of the universe. But to get the real value of the age of the universe, we also have to consider the amount of matter and energy of the universe. But in my very first approach, the inverse of the Hubble constant, it is the age of the universe. It is just that. Because what do you have? A Hubble constant, it is kilometers per second per megaparsecs. Yeah. You can kill kilometers and megaparsecs because That's they right. are also distance, two distances. These distances, and then you have... Per seconds. So it's basically a frequency. It is a frequency. That's hilarious. It, it is a frequency. I've never thought of it this before. That's so it, funny. It is a frequency. With that, you can derive the age of the universe. Of course. And that is why... The inverse of frequency is period. Period. And it That's is. so funny. Everything never is connected. never thought about that. That's Every, so cool. Everything is connected. And it is also one of the reasons why we have a constant. It is one of the main parameters for cosmology. That's right. That makes so much sense. But again, what we are talking here, it is about the very first approach. In the moment that mm -hmm. we are not considering an empty, easy universe, but an universe like the real one we are living now. Yes. But it is called the standard model of cold dark matter with uh, cosmological constant. Mm -hmm. Then you have to add some few terms. Oh, yes. Around there that I'm not going to describe here because it's starting to be a bit messy. Yes. For um, getting the right equation. So mm. that is only an approach. Yeah. 
Well, in in that using that as a bit of a segue, maybe we should talk about the lambda cold dark model of the universe. Then yes, and yeah, yeah, we have jumped from there to here. Perfect, perfect. 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 So basically, uh, this this is a this is currently the most accepted model of the universe, the lambda cold dark matter mo- cosmological model. Basically, it states that the universe is flat, which we'll explain, and expanding with time. So. This is this is what we know. We 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 observe the universe. We can see that it's expanding with time, and we also know that it is flat. Let's explain why it's flat. What does flat mean, Angel? I think strictly talking, it is the intrinsic geometry of the universe. Mm. In the sense that it is not well, it is flat because that definition. So it, yes. is, it is that we would consider the the big, larger scale of the universe. It should be uh, this flat thing. Mm. And in, when we compare to other surface, like for example, the one that you have in a ball. Yep, the, or, the surface of a ball or, or a saddle. One, exactly, mm-hmm. or the one in the saddle, something like that. So it is just different because the or a Pringle. Of a Pringle, <laughs> I, I prefer <laughs> the Pringle. Pringle. Pringles are saddle shaped. <laughs> yes. Because the way that, at the end of the day, geometry is just how you measure distances between one point and the other. Yes. And it is not the same, the geometry that you have in a plane, and that we know that very well, that that is uh, Euclidean geometry, Mm -hmm. to the geometry, the way we measure in a sphere, for example, on the Earth. Yes. Which, by the way, it is one of the main arguments against the crazy people that still say that the Earth is flat. Actually, I have a, fu- a funny little thing. Um, uh, Brian Cox tweeted the other day while he was in New Zealand a photo of him and his uh, right-hand man, Robin Ince, the comedian from the UK, that they were standing in autumn. And so he tweeted saying to uh, any flat earth people that might still follow me from the Northern Hemisphere, how can you explain that I'm standing in autumn right now? <laughs> I'm like, ha, ha, ha. Yeah. <laughs> Take that. <laughs> see, you see... Let's say you try and fumble your way through this explanation, flat earthers. <laughs> so the, the the situation of the on the surface of the Earth it is, I like to explain with this. Imagine that you are in the equator, more or less, and you get a plane, mm-hmm. and you travel ten thousand kilometers, more or less, in, in no more or less, in the direction of the equator. So you move ten thousand kilometers in the direction of the equator. Mm-hmm. Then you move ninety degrees to the north. Yes, and you travel. 10,000 kilometers. I know where this is going. Yep. And then you again turn 90 degrees in the same direction as you did before and travel another 10,000 kilometers. Mm-hmm. You get exactly to the same point where you started. That's right. But you only turned twice. You only turned twice. You be- made a big fat triangle. <laughs> because in a spherical geometry, when you add the three angles of a triangle, it is more than 180 degrees. Mm. Where for those remembering back to, I don't know, year eight geometry, the internal angles of a flat triangle add up to 180. 180, as Euclid said many millennia ago. Mm. That at the end of the day, it's the same thing that we can extrapolate to the universe. When we are talking about the flat universe, it is that the geometry in which we measure distances in our cosmos, we can apply Euclidean geometry. We don't need to go to an sphere or to go to <coughs> the pingles. That's right. It makes things very convenient. Um, people were very surprised about that. Or why did that have to be flat? And actually explaining why, mm. 
there is no way of explaining why we can't move. Well, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't have to be flat? Is that's just how that's just what we observe that it is flat? That it is flat. It, it could have been it could have been like if we were on the t- on the surface of a ball, or it mm. could be like we're on a Pringle. It's just it just happened to be flat. In the same way that the mass of an electron, it is what it is. In the same way that the speed of light, it is the way the, the, the number that it is. In the mm. same way that all. Or even the, I think the, even better is the, the whole reason why we say an electron has a negative charge. It's just convention. That is convention. That's convention. That, oh, that, that's that is, chosen. That is, that is convention. That yes. is chosen. We have chosen that an electron have that uh, yes that charge, and a proton has the same charge but in positive. Yep. And then that was. Crazy when the quarks were discovered because they have to have uh, fractionary charges. <laughs> and there was a kind of, uh, and there was even people that were thinking perhaps we should say that the electron have three and the proton have three, oh, I mean, no. minus three and three, and then the other have one or two, <laughs> <laughs> one minus one. Anyway, right. But the great thing about this model is that it provides a good fit for observations of the cosmic microwave background, mm-hmm. which is uh, and the large-scale structure of the universe as well. But it also, not just that, it also um, provides a good fit for other characteristics, such as the abundance of hydrogen and helium and lithium in the universe. Yes. And also, of course, the accelerating expansion of the universe. That is very important. Going back again to Hubble's law. Hubble-Lemaitre law. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So these are some of the ways we have to update our information about the universe and our models to the universe to get an agreement with the observations. I remember that I grew up when I was a kid and reading many books talking about, okay, our universe have the started expansion and we still don't know if the expansion it is decreasing in, 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 in velocity mm-hmm. and perhaps there will be a moment in which the expansion will stop Yes, and everything and turn will around. come back, and Ooh. we will get to another point of high density, high energy, which was called the big crunch. Yes, get the big crunch. And and, and I remember that I always loved that idea. I don't know why it's <laughs> destroyed by fire again. <laughs> and there is even a very interesting novel, science fiction novel, that is called Tau Zero, by Paul Anderson that uses that as a key point of the argument of the novel. Oh, the, the big crunch. Yes, yeah, the big crunch. That's and very the, cool. And something happened because they're able to survive the big crunch and move to the next phase of the universe. Oh, <laughs> very cool. So I remember when I was a teenager and started my time at the university a few decades ago, already. that was the thing. So what will be the fate of our universe? So it will be an open in the sense that it will be expanding forever. Mm-hmm. It will be the flat, but the, the moment that the gravitation, because we have not said that, so the two big forces, mm. they will say there will be the expansion of the universe because of what happened at the beginning of the universe, and then the gravity. Trying to pull everything back together. And pull everything back together. Mm. But so gravity the, is very weak. Gravity is very weak, mm. but still, perhaps it was able to put everything together. That was why it was so important to know exactly how much amount of matter was in the universe. Mm. There were the three big models of the universe, so always expanding, flat, but it's actually in agreement with the flat geometry, and always uh, con- and contracting and starting again yes. with the big crunch. 
But in 1998, we discovered that the expansion of the universe was accelerating. Mm. So that was done by two independent projects, the Supernova Cosmological Project and the High Z Supernova Search Team. And they both found at the same time, they were more or less talking one thing to each other, they released the papers at the same time and used the distances they were able to determine to type 1A supernova to measure very well the distance and mm. they were able to measure very well the velocity these galaxies were moving away from us and these galaxies were not following the standard Hubble-Lemaitre law and the only way of explaining that was adding the extra component of the universe that now we call the dark energy yes which Speaking of dark energy, that's what the lambda corresponds to. Mm -hmm. So the lambda being the cosmological constant, constant, which relates to the amount of dark energy that there is in the universe. That it was interesting because probably our listeners know this little history. But it was originally in the equations of general relativity introduced by Einstein. In that moment, the expansion of the universe was not even a thing. Mm. So Einstein even thought in those times that the universe was static. That's right, and he, and for he making... found the cosmological constant to be his biggest blunder, Yes, so... which was an anti-blunder because we actually need it. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, so, Einstein. So he took it away from the equation, say, ah, we don't need this, mm. and then they were able to relate later, just in the last years of the 20th century when this was discovered and mm. at the beginning of the 21st century that the cosmological constant is related to this accelerated expansion of the universe. You did that. You did that extra kind of force or a negative pressure mm. that is making that the expansion of the universe in a step of decelerating, it is accelerating. That's right. So that's what the lambda actually exactly. means. But I think now we should talk about... What, I mean, everyone's heard about dark matter before. But what is cold dark matter? And I, I'll, I'll happily take over this because I, I really love... Li I love this, uh, but I'm going to let you talk. Cold dark matter is so, so, for lack of a better word, cool. Okay, so we, we all know about dark matter, but we don't know what dark matter could be yet. Mm -hmm. we, we still haven't detected dark matter yet. But, of course, there are uh, observations that we, can, that we can do that lead to the evidence and uh, provide evidence for dark matter, but cold dark matter. So there are two main branches of what dark matter could be. You have cold and, surprise, surprise, hot <laughs> dark matter. Now I'll start with hot dark matter first. So hot dark matter is usually made up of, I think they're machos? No? No, neutrinos. Neutrinos, that's right, yes, neutrinos. So these are these are... The very important note here is that they are relativistic particles. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're traveling at speeds very like close, comparable to the speed of light. Now, the problem with... And, and that is why it is called hot. Yes, because they're moving very fast, they're very mm. hot, they're moving around. Um, now, the problem with hot dark matter is that the faster this these particles are moving, the harder it is for hot dark matter to clump in the way that we see it clumping together in the universe today. Mm -hmm. and, and in the history of the universe as well, okay? Because they're moving a lot faster, it's much harder, it's, it takes a much long, longer time scale for these sorts of particles to fall together and become stable. And I guess, I assume they become non-relativistic at some point um, if they were to clump together. Uh, uh, probably not. Probably not. Probably not. Yes, they're, they're traveling too fast. Too fast. 
But then you have on the other side this cold dark matter, which these particles have been theorized. You have axons. 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 And wimps. wimps, that's right. Weakly interacting massive particles. Mm-hmm. I love the name. Yeah. <laughs> They're wimps. <laughs> but these ones are a lot more favorable to describe the large-scale structure of the universe. And that is the main point. And that's the main point, exactly. Because this, this cold dark matter can actually, they're slow moving, they can actually clump together in the way that we see it, and it just makes a lot more sense mm-hmm. than hot dark matter. So observationally, in the late 70s and early 80s of uh, last century, we still didn't have a map of the large-scale structure of the universe. I mean talking about how galaxies were organized in the universe. That is Mm. when we are talking about large-scale structure. Yeah. That is what it means. Um, And there were some few famous astronomers and physicists trying to do the calculation about the distribution of galaxies, assuming the hot dark matter Mm. and the cold dark matter. The prediction that models using hot dark matter provided a supercluster of galaxies very strong, and the voids, many voids, and mm-hmm. very large voids with almost anything in there, mm-hmm. because of what you said, the clumpiness of hot matter particles we are doing. But on the other hand, the models using cold dark matter, we are not able to get the large scale structure as we see it, in the sense that it was much more a smooth universe, not that much full of superstar cluster of galaxies, filaments, and voids. It was a bit more homogeneous. And they were just waiting for astronomers, observational astronomers, to get the maps. Yes. And when that happened for the first time, that was with the CFA2 Redshift Survey in the middle of the 80s, it was starting to be evident that it was the colder matter and not the hotter matter. Mm. Later, our own 2DF, with the 2DF galaxy relative survey, which was the main reason why the 2DF instrument and the Anglo-Australian telescope was built. Mm. Beautiful instrument. In the middle of the 90s, in the last century, was exactly to get an independent estimation of the large-scale structure using a galaxy in the southern hemisphere and to trace all of that. And Mm. the predictions that were given by the colder matter models were much more accurate, although with some caveats, that the hotter matter. And it was in the moment that the hotter matter was just taken out of the equation. That's right. And what, all we're looking for is the, the the model that best describes the observations. Like, we're, we're not going to be perfect every single time. Like, Newton's laws aren't always perfect. I mean, they're pretty, per- they're pretty good. Mm. <laughs> they're pretty good. But they're not always perfect in terms of when you get close to a star, when you get close to a really big galaxy. And that is why you have other equations to explain that. That's right. That's right. But when you go from these very complex or high-level equations, let's say if we are talking about general relativity, and when we are using general relativity into our standard life values, Mm. general relativity directly converts into Newton. It does. And that is one of the key things about theory. The same way, for example, with quantum mechanics. Mm. If you assume, for general relativity, it is assuming that the speed of light is infinite. Yes. If you extrapolate that, you get Newton's law. In quantum mechanics, if you extrapolate that the um, Planck constant is going to zero, and it's zero, 
then you get also Newton's law. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. It's just like, oh, it's Newton's laws popping out everywhere, so left, it, right, and center. So it is not that. It is just that we are building our hypothesis first and then laws into theories yes. with the knowledge that we have had in the past. Mm. We have mentioned that also in the podcast before. No? Yeah, we are um, on top of the shoulders of giants. Of giants, that's right. Yes. Now, I think we should talk about a little bit more about how this dark matter plays into the structure of the universe. Because we talked about how uh, cold dark matter can clump together, but then what do these clumps actually do? What, where, do, where do they come from? What do they actually do? What do they turn into? And what, what, how, how do we actually get galaxies, this Big Bang, this inflation period, and the cosmic microwave background radiation? So, to start, I'm sure everyone's at least seen the cosmic microwave background radiation once in their lives. If you haven't, Google it. It's just this big oval picture it's mostly blue it's got a bit of green a bit of yellow a bit of red in it i'm going to enter there one second sorry 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 if you actually get the picture of the cosmic background radiation it should have the same color everywhere <laughs> as true because it is the closest thing actually it is not the closest it is a completely a black body mm. So, so, yeah, the, the, the colors aren't actually representing colors at all. They are representing colors. I mean, they're representing a small variation in temperature. Mm -hmm. uh, what I wanted to say, sorry again for interrupting <laughs> you, because it is something that I like to emphasize to when, when I'm trying to talk about the cosmic background radiation, it is that we observe it doesn't matter where you're looking at, always the same amount of radiation. Always the same amount. Always, mm. always, always, always. Even in your TV, sometimes you you got the interference. Yes, the, the old the old cathode ray televisions. They they could they got see it. the background radiation. But if you stretch to get variations that are in the order of zero point zero 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 one in degrees in temperature, that is when you see the map that you are describing at the moment. That's right. So the, the temperature, these are temperature variations and fluctuations on the order of 200 microkelvin. So, yeah. which which we can also just say microdegrees as well because the, the, yeah. the scale of, the same. is the same. It's just boosted a little bit. So unless you're thinking in Fahrenheit, in which case, learn yep. Celsius and yep. Kelvin. You are wrong. That's, that's all I have to say about that. But yes, so it's a, it's a very, very small fluctuation in, in temperature, but it's these fluctuations and also the fluctuations in the density of matter in that early stage of the universe that leads to our large-scale structure of the universe. And we have tested this and we have seen this. And, and you should so see, cool. again, you should see uh, Kirsten Faye so excited telling this history because it is actually amazing. It, it is, is really, incredibly really, amazing. It is understanding that I will say that it is one of the great achievements that we have got in science in some way. And what it is more important, it is that everyone can actually understand that, I think. Mm. It is just uh, what, what we are observing. And these are the seeds. That's it. I like that. The seeds where all the galaxies are going to born mm. later in the future. Because uh, we, we cannot also forget that the cosmic background radiation, it is this kind of echo from the Big Bang, 
I like to say that, <laughs> that happens around 300,000 years. 300,000 years, not 300 million, 300,000 years after the very Big Bang. And the first stars weren't discovered for millions of years later. And there will be no stars for many, many million of years. That's right. So, so it's, this is this is the, this is the closest we've gotten to the Big Bang. It it is the moment in which all the universe have roughly the temperature that we see in the surface of stars. Mm. We cannot see anything that is much more distant than the cosmic background radiation, because in that moment, the light and the matter were intrinsically together. Mm. We cannot separate them. No. In the moment of the cosmic background radiation, it is when light can finally escape mm. from matter. We can finally start to see some photons. We can see some photons, but the universe will be very dark. Yes. For many, many million years. It's what we call the dark ages. The dark ages. Of the universe. And then we will have the cosmic dawn, mm. which is when the first stars are born and, the, and in galaxies and proto-galaxies, whatever, and we still don't understand them very well. You know, I have to say, astronomers usually are very bad at naming things, but whew, no, the cosmic dawn. The cosmic dawn—that's a good name. That is a very good name indeed. <laughs> the dark ages, the cosmic dawn. Like, what's next? Oh, okay. So back onto our dark matter and little clumps. Okay, so uh, actually, the large-scale structure of the universe. What what do we have in our large-scale structure of the universe? We have galaxies. Of course, we live in a galaxy, but we're not the only galaxy in our nearest neighborhood. We have the Andromeda Galaxy. We have the Triangulum mm-hmm. Galaxy as yes. well. And These are the three main galaxies in the uh, um, local group of galaxies. Yes. So then, of course, we have groups of galaxies, and then we have clusters, clusters. which is what I'm working on in my thesis. <laughs> we have clusters, and we have superclusters. And then basically just have the rest of the universe. And then we have, yeah, the, the yeah. rest of the universe, the mm. fila- kind of filamentary structure connecting... The cosmic web. The cosmic web, yes. Mm. That, that is the name. The cosmic web connecting different supergalaxy clusters and um, getting this filamentary structure and the voids in the distant part of this supergalaxy cluster. So. Mm. That's right. So galaxies, let's talk about where they come from. So galaxies come from... Well, I mean, they don't necessarily come from, but they are, they are formed inside what's called dark matter halos. Now, these basically, I'm going to talk about what's called the hierarchical merger model, which is basically an extension of the lambda cold dark matter model, or like a subsection of it. A subsection, I think, would be better. A subsection, better. yes. So, and again, this is coming from my thesis right now, as it's currently written at this moment. This model basically describes what's called a bottom-up approach to galaxy formation and also dark matter halo formation as well, in the sense that it suggests that matter starts off in small clumps. We've mentioned these a couple of times already today. They start in small clumps where these small clumps merge together to form larger structures. Okay, And there's this really cool image that I have, or this figure that I have in my thesis, which is um, there there was this tweet on Twitter last week where someone said, what's your favorite tree? And I said, the dark matter merger tree. (laughs) (laughs) Not actually a tree, but it looks like a tree. So basically you have these very uh, small clumps of dark matter halos that merge together to form bigger ones, where the two are called progenitors, Mm -hmm. and they come together to form a bigger one. And they just keep merging and merging and merging until you get just a big, 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 
uh, dark matter halo. And it's within these halos where galaxies also form mm -hmm. and also merge as well. Exactly. Which is basically the entire, the entire topic of my thesis, the merging of galaxies in these dark matter halos. Mm -hmm. Good. Ooh. Great. Yes, because we cannot forget that we have the dark matter doing the clumpiness thing. At the end of the day, the, when we are observing the cosmic background radiation, there's differences in temperature, it is a difference in matter, and it is mainly, if not almost only, dark matter, the way you explain that. Mm. And after that, the baryonic matter, I mean baryonic matter... Normal uh, matter. Normal matter, everything that is protons, neutrons, and electrons, mm. follow the dark matter. That's and right. And where they're going to be? In the center of the dark matter halos. And that is where the first galaxies are going to evolve. That's right, through cooling flows. And then they are <laughs> cooling flows, exactly. Very nice name also. Mm -hmm. And all of that is going to make that then galaxies, galaxies are also going to merge one with another. First, small galaxies and more entities, even smaller than what we call dwarf galaxies at the moment. Then dwarf galaxies that are going to merge eventually create spiral galaxies and spiral galaxies at the end of the day they're going to merge also together and then form elliptical, elliptical galaxies. galaxies the big ones and the big ones and i mean big big ones. big galaxies these are the galaxies that i am specifically looking at and they are called the brightest cluster galaxies mm. for very good reason because they are the brightest galaxies in the cluster and that is also why i'm interested exactly on the other end of that spectrum which is the dwarf galaxies because we still can observe many dwarf galaxies locally. Yes. And we expect or we hope that these many of the properties of the dwarf galaxies that we are observing at the moment, because they have not evolved that much, we think, they will have some reminiscence of the very primitive galaxies. Mm. So understanding how the processes of forming stars and evolution of dwarf galaxies in the local universe is also giving plenty of idea about the first processes of the universe forming galaxies. So we were mentioning briefly this before we were recording because we are talking about cosmology and perhaps we think about cosmology just uh, the distant galaxies, very big things in the distant past and very early moments of the universe. But there is another branch of cosmology that is called the nearby cosmology mm -hmm. that uses observations just even around the Milky Way and around the galaxies and the local, no, no, not the local group, but the local volume, very nearby galaxies, that we can actually count the number of satellites, for example, and that is a prediction given by the hierarchical model of galaxy formation following the Lambda CDM model for the universe. Another prediction of the Lambda CDM model that we can test in nearby galaxies, it is that galaxies should have around plenty of tails and features that are the product of dwarf galaxies and even faint objects that have been interacting with the main galaxy, developing this kind of features that they have a very low surface brightness and very difficult to see, but we started to see them with very deep images. Some of them, by the way, obtained by very good amateur astronomers. That is so cool. Wow. I'm surprised how much we actually managed to cover. 
on yeah. cosmology today. Well, because we have been talking for a for a while, although we have <laughs> we I will have to edit some few things, including the many 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 planes annoying us during this afternoon recording. They were really loud today too. Yeah, perhaps the weather. I don't know. The, the things we go through for you guys. Good. But with that, I think we should wrap yes, this up exactly. and finish on what's up. What's up? What's so, up? So, what's up? Despite the fact that we've been talking about, you know, very far away things and cosmology and the start of the universe, we're, we are going to have a what's up of look at the Big Bang. No, I'm kidding. I am so kidding. We can't see the Big Bang. So, our what's up for this episode is a star in Scorpius, which was formerly known as Epsilon Scorpi or Scorpii. Scorpii? Scorpii, I think. Scorpii. Anyway, Mm -hmm. it was formerly known as Epsilon Scorpii, but is now officially known worldwide as Larawag, which if you've listened to our episodes before, you would have heard about this one. So this is a traditional Aboriginal name from the Waterman people up in Northern Territory, just south southwest of Darwin. And Larawag is a fantastic little star. It's only 63.7 light years away. Mm-hmm. Just so fantastic, is, quite relatively close, one of the closest mm-hmm. stars to us. And it is the fifth brightest star of the Scorpion. And it's a little bit difficult to find. If you know Scorpius very well, if you go to Antares, the heart of the Scorpion, probably one of the easiest stars to find in the Scorpion, and you locate the tail and spin the tail around, Larawag is the next significantly brightest, brightest star on the tail. Like going towards the tail. It's kind of like near the, the guts of the of the scorpion. So Antares has two stars, one to the west and another to the east. And uh, it is the one to the east that is not the one because they are relatively bright. It's like Antares and two stars guarding Antares. Mm. It is not that one. It is the next one bright that you find when you go through the tail. To, yeah, it's, to the, it's, about, the tail. it's about where the, the curve of the tail starts. Mm. The bright star near there. Yes. Wonderful little star. Have a have a look at it. Yes, the name of Larawag. 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 Yep. How is it? Larawag. 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 Yeah. That was officially given by the International Astronomical Union just recently. That's right. Just in December 2017. 17, yes. And uh, along with three other stars. Some few other stars. We mentioned yeah. that also in our yes. one of the very first episodes. That's right. Some people are still using the name of Wei as a Chinese name for this star that was uh, introduced by Patrick Moore. But actually, there was some kind of confusion translating from Chinese into English. And Wei was just a part of the name in that the Chinese used for identifying the tail of a Scorpio. So actually, the full name of Epsilon Scorpi of Larawak in Chinese should be Wei Xiu Eng. I don't know how to pronounce that. That means the second star of tail. Because ah, it is the second one. It is one. the second star it is the second of the tail. Star. It is the one that I mentioned before that is going mm-hmm. exactly to the west. Mm-hmm. Sorry, exactly to the east. That is um, relatively bright. And then the next one that is just going a bit down. Yes. That is going <laughs> south east. That is Larawak. Yeah, so please enjoy. Let us know if you find Larawag in your skies. Yeah, it is a variable star too. Oh, it yes. Usually have a magnitude of around 2.3, but it is a kind of uh, eruptive variable. Of course, because it is a giant 
star with a temperature of around 4,000 Celsius degrees. That's quite decent. Yeah. And the last fact about Larawak that I don't want to forget to mention, it is that it is one of the few stars that have been observed using optical interferometry. Ah. And they have been able to determine the size, the physical size of the star, that it is around 13 times the radius of the sun. That's really cool. So if you want to know the exact number, it has 5.99 plus minus 0.06 micro r seconds. That is the physical size ah. of the star in the sky. That's really cool. There you go. So enjoy Larawag for us this fortnight. Um, thank you for listening to our cosmology episode or our snippet of cosmology episode because, like we said at the start, there was no way we are going to get through all of this. And even just now, we've recorded for over an hour, almost an hour and 20 minutes. Yeah, but as I said, we, we still have a bit of edit here. But we are, I think, providing more or less a good view of the main topics about cosmology, perhaps focused in uh, some few of them a bit more into detail and some few others which are just given the, just the number and so on. But, mm. well, it is the way it is. Perhaps in another episode we can focus completely to describe how the analysis of the type 1a supernova is in order to understand the, the accelerated expansion of the universe, how that happened, why that is so important, and some few of the uncertainties and the different problems that we have with that, because we can think about that all type 1a supernova are the same, but actually they are not. Nope. And you have to correct for that. Mm. But that will be for another episode. That's right. And if you have any questions about what we said today, please, please let us know. Send us a question on Twitter. Question, Facebook. Questions. Corrections. Yes. We're, we're not afraid to admit when we're wrong because we, we say a lot of sort of a lot of things that can sometimes be a little bit wrong, but that's okay because we can always correct ourselves. Yes, and that is the way also we are learning. That's right. That's right. We, so, are, we are not omni-sapiens. No. <laughs> so until next time, we'll see you around, scientists. Bye-bye. Bye. You know what we should talk about? The Doppler effect of the planes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can do a life experiment of the Doppler effect in this episode. Okay. Uh, again, I lost what I was saying.